0: 2 Kings chapter 6 tonight And we'll we'll see how far we get Uh, And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there And let us make there a place where we may dwell So he answered go And then one said well please consent to go with your servants And he answered I'll go So we've been, uh, Elisha's been out uh, ministering to individuals, bypassing the king. We're moving out of the era of kings into the era of prophets. And the authority of the prophet is still prominent as Elisha's doing his thing. But he's just going out blessing people straight up. God's working with them because we've seen a bunch of miracles. Um, Where we saw the idea of pouring out the oil in chapter 4 we get these Old Testament images of types of ministry and we've been seeing those archetypes or those images. Chapter 4, 8 was hospitality. Verse 33 was prayer. Verse 35 was this, this miracle of resurrection that happens. Verse 40 was there was death in the pot. If you remember that line, uh, it was purified with flour or unleavened bread material. Verse 44 is the feeding of the 100 with leftovers. All of these become images of the ministry of Christ. That he did all of these things, but he did them a lot bigger and a lot more fulfilled. Chapter 5, we got the story of Naaman, uh, a Gentile leopard that gets divinely washed clean. We get Gehazi, a Jewish leader that exhibited an unclean heart. Um, we were just looking at Mark chapter seven this morning. You had the Pharisees with unclean hearts. You had the Gentiles with clean hearts. So here we see a reflection of that in the Old Testament that gets manifested in the ministry of Jesus. Note the total departure from the record of the kings. As of tonight, we'll get back to the record of the kings. But we're going we've had like a five chapter just. The kings don't matter anymore, and the ministry of God continues to move forward as we do that. So we get a season where God's ministering to Israel, but the king isn't the focus anymore. And God can minister through what is in verse 1, the sons of the prophets. They, they've named this group a few times now, and it's this group of people that are serving Yahweh regardless of what the false worship is of the land that they live in. They're in a non-Jewish nation, but they're continuing to be Jewish people, and that. The sons of the prophets is to live under the law there. It's not a biological relationship. But that idea that they're sons of the prophets, they're of the same mind. All of which is arguably also an image of Jesus where he says we can be sons and daughters of God. And that it's not a biological relationship, but it has to do with the beliefs of our heart. And it makes you wonder, as we've done this for the last few chapters, what's the next stage of that? So then you get this story of like, They're in a place that's too small for them, and they got to build a new building. And the idea of we will dwell with you, this place where we dwell with you, in the Hebrew means to sit. It's an implication when you sit under a rabbi, you're there to learn from them. And they're saying, look, there's too many people showing up. So the sons of the prophet, this little group of people that dedicated to God, tends to be a growing group of people. And they can't fit in their facility anymore, (laughs) which sounds pretty familiar. Like all of a sudden you're looking around going, okay, we don't fit here anymore. Um, So it's a common thing that actually happens with the ministry of the church, is that churches start up, they stick to the word of God, suddenly you find people that are blessed by that, and it becomes too small of a place. They're outgrowing their facilities, pretty common kind of problem in the church. So the other piece is they... There seems to be a really interesting relationship where they come to Elisha and ask for his blessing to take the next step. And they're asking for him to come with. It, he says he'll go with them in verse 3, but it, even if he didn't go with them, the idea isn't that Elijah's like this great carpenter and they want him to come with because he's a good worker. They want him to come with not because he's going to carry or make his own beam, but because he's a blessing to have around. That when you have somebody who's teaching God's word and you're learning and you're being mentored by that person, what a blessing in in your life to have that kind of person that you can call and say, hey, I'm struggling with something, what do you do? And we're going to see as Elijah moves forward that he takes care of very little things. But essentially as their spiritual leader, he responds with a blessing simply by going through life with them. "I'll, I'll come to your workplace and I'll hang out with you. And it's kind of a beautiful, sweet relationship. He agrees to come along, lending not only his approval to the endeavor, but also just to be there as a blessing to him. And then you get the story of the floating axe head, which, again, could at first glance seem out of place. But I think if you take that whole context from the the jars getting filled with oil and looking at those, this axe head thing kind of fits with the whole narrative when you're looking at that semi-prophetic kind of typography or the image bearing that this these chapters are doing verse 4 so he went with them and they came to the jordan and they cut down trees but as one was cutting down a tree an iron axe head fell into the water and he cried out saying alas master for it was borrowed so really the metal is expensive in this area i mean we call it the bronze age but iron was not so common that it was cheap so Losing an axe head was a pretty big deal. Apparently, this is a fairly common problem, because back in Deuteronomy, there's actually a law around this, Deuteronomy 19.5. For example, someone amongst you goes into the forest with a neighbor to cut wood, and suppose one of them swings an axe to chop down a tree, and the axe head flies off the handle, killing the other person. And there's whole laws as to what to do when axe heads fly off. So clearly the technology for attaching the iron to the wood has not improved significantly since that law was given. So flying axe heads are just kind of like a, like a danger of the trade. Like if you're going to build a building, just watch for flying axe heads because they happen. Um, in this case, um, it's a costly loss. Um, the note here is that the work, the, the thing that he's upset about is that it was borrowed. And I, and I actually think this is kind of a cool thing because you got these people trying to live under God's law even though the king isn't anymore. And you, But you, the, the idea is if I borrowed something from you and then I lose it and it's expensive and I can't pay you back for it, like the, the, they're trying to do their best to live under God's law and the frustration here is this person's in a situation where they can't honor that person that borrowed on the axe head. And that's... When you're living life and you're trying to do your best to follow God's law and you screw up, like there is something for people that are they have a heart after God and you're like, dang, I really screwed that up. So his upsetness, I think, is put in the right place. It gives us a little picture of just what kind of people these people were. They're just simple people trying to do God's work. And he says, alas, master, he doesn't make a request. There's no request for a miracle here. Nobody goes to Elijah and says, save my axe head. The assumption is the axe head's gone. And so he's just kind of bemoaning it and I, in the way that I think a good person would say, dang, I really screwed up this person I borrowed it from because now I lost something valuable that I, I can't pay off. This then becomes about integrity, the question of integrity, I think, is a cool deal. If you're trying to say that you represent God and you're trying to live according to God's law and you do something to offend, hurt or damage someone else. The problem is I just hurt the reputation of God by losing this person's stuff. And that wasn't this person's intent. So what good's a new building going to be if their example for the Lord is, is weakened by the lifestyles that they live? So even though you got a, a body of people trying to serve the king, the integrity of their lifestyle matters, and all that comes out of this guy going, "Alas, I borrowed that," and with the implication of I can't afford to pay it back. And I think that's kind of cool, and and it's how God's people work. And I think it's true in that our honor has some impact on the witness that we bear as a community. So people can look at your community and point out one person that has horrible ethics and morals and they can say, see, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. But when you have a group of people that are living for the Lord and doing it consistently with the integrity they can muster, then when somebody falls short, like verse 5, the response is, oh shoot, we fell short. Let's fix this. So, the man of God, take note in verse 6 that they don't use the name of Elisha. And I think that's important as this could be an image of church behavior, that it isn't about the person. It really is just A man of God and and it switches back there. The man of God said, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. Therefore he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and, and took it. You could argue this is foreshadowing of Jesus walking on the water right? Things that should sink are now floating. And obviously in context of all these other stories, we've seen Jesus just do things way bigger than Elisha. But So we've seen a lot of those images. It's a small miracle, but it's a miracle nonetheless. We all know iron sinks and it should sink. That's how physics works. So there's no naturalistic explanation. There's no parlor trick that makes iron float that I'm aware of, you know? So You get this, this becomes one of the things that becomes a sticking point for a non-believer, right? I don't believe that iron floats on water. Or I don't believe people can walk on water, so how can I believe the entire book? And the answer for the Christian is like, we agree. I don't think iron floats on water either. And I don't think people walk on water. But I do believe that God said so and God created the natural order of things. And if God wants to change the rules for a moment, that's God's creation that he can do with as he pleases. The Bible never says that people walk on water. The Bible says that God assists people in walking on water. And the same is true of an iron axe head. The Bible never argues that iron floats. It argues that God made the iron float. And I think we have a few clues to that in here. The burden of proof then is, I think, on the skeptic to show that God can't do this. Right? Versus the idea from the Christian perspective of, actually, it's a pretty reasonable thing to think God can do whatever he wants with his creation. And does on occasion. So the simple removal of Elisha's name allows God to be the primary figure here. It's just a man of God, even though Elisha's name just got used a few verses ago. They remove Elijah from the equation because Elijah's not important to the equation. Second thing, the use of the stick here seems to be something that Elijah's done a few times before. He uses the vessels and the vessel of oil. He uses the um, salt when he throws it in the Jordan. He uses these things that have nothing to do with anything, like throw in some flour in the pot and it purifies the pot. So it's not that flour purifies pots or salt cleans up a river or that the stick made the axe head float. But it does take the attention off the man of God. So when he cuts that stick and throws it in the water, it's not that the stick has magical properties, but it's he sh- then he can step away and let God see it. It's the same thing when the soldiers, the 50 soldiers came up, and Elijah said, if God's the God of the heavens, then you guys are going to fry, and fire hits them and fries them up. It, it, there's this idea that for people of God, we may pray for things and ask for things, but we never assume that we're doing it through our own clever means, that God does things. Elijah cuts the branch, then he asks the worker to reach for the axe. God does the miraculous part, but it's interesting how almost all of these miracles, there's some role for humanity to take in the miracle. You go gather the vessels, and then God's going to fill them up. You pick up the axe head after God's raised it up. And, and again, just as an image of this idea, picking it up for yourself is not that God needs us to do miracles, but for some amazing graceful reason, God invites us to be part of the miracles. You do your thing. That's, there's nothing miraculous about picking up an axe head. There's nothing miraculous about going out and gathering the vessels. There's nothing miraculous about going, hey, there's death in the pot. Why should we eat this? But, so God never asks humans to do the miraculous part, but he does ask us to be part of it. You take the lobes and fishes and start handing them out and let God do his part of that equation. So it's got to be encouraging as they're in the workforce, they're cutting down beams, they're getting ready to build a building, that this little miracle happens probably spreads through the whole camp. So it's a really small miracle, but because they're in community and they share it with each other, it becomes encouraging to everybody in the room. This is why we share things every week. What's going on? Because if there's those kinds of things happening in our lives, we want to share that and expand the encouragement or give the glory to the Lord. Matthew 10, 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from our Father's will? Part of what I like about this miracle is there's nothing too small for God. You know, he can part the Red Sea. He can feed the 5,000. He can also just get an axe head to pop up for a worker that doesn't want to bring dishonor to his community. And God does those kinds of miracles too. And we see this really sweet little miracle. And don't forget, this is an ancient text that we're reading. So compare that to any other culture's ancient text. Like this kind of story is personal, intimate, understandable, emotional, um, and and it's beautiful. And that this almighty God, this all-powerful God that changes the course of armies can also just help an individual that doesn't want to let his friend down. That's the kind of God we serve. So here's the point. The new ministry is growing. What Elisha is doing outside of advising the king is actually expanding. They need more room. And this is a contrast to the ungodly kings that have been shown much bigger miracles. You have simple working folks that are just students of the word. And God just brings encouragement for them to keep it up. Just keep doing what you're doing. They're not backed up by a kingship or anything like that. Then we switch to these major events. Verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place, and, which is Old Testament for it doesn't matter where it was. It's just such and such a place. And the man of God sent the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. And then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him and thus warned him. And he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So the king of Syria is trying to make war on Israel and everywhere he brings his army, he he gets run into by the Israelites. This has got to be frustrating as heck. You want to catch unsuspecting little towns, steal all their stuff, loot and pillage and make your money off of easy pickings. So if everywhere you go, you run into the same few people waving at you from the hillside, that would be antagonizing even. So Elisha is not only serving these folks here, but he's also sending word to an ungodly king. Why is he helping an evil Israel, right? And I think part of it is this from God's perspective, an evil Israel is better than an evil Syria. And we should know that these Syrians are a rising power in the world. They're horrifying people. Their religion is barbaric and nasty and cruel and based on power. Power and human sacrifice. So to have Syria conquer and, and their god is Hadad Riman, the sun god, god of storms, the chief of the Baals, um, holds a lightning bolt in his hand, sound familiar to other polytheistic religions, right? And uh, And accepts human sacrifices. If you want to make this god happy, that's how you do it. Jeroham uh, doesn't persecute God's people in the same way that this king would persecute him. So it's in God's interest to protect the northern kingdom, even though he's got a sinful king. Therefore, verse 11, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Where's the traitor? Because the information was so good. The king eventually figures out he's got to have a traitor in their midst that's informing the Israelites. Because it's just, it's beyond coincidence. These people of God seem to keep showing up at the right place at the right time, and I can't get away from them, which I think is awesome, right? Nope, you can't get away from them. God's got a plan to protect his people. And one of his servants said, none, my Lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom, which strongly implies that they have spies over in Israel. Because they know who Elisha is. His popularity has grown past the borders of Israel. Verse 13, so he said, go and see where he is that I might send and get him. And it was told him, surely he's in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army. The word great army there implies infantry. So horses, chariots, infantry. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose, early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Very similar language to, Alas, master, my axe head has sunk. Very small problem. Here we have a very big problem, the elimination of all the sons of the prophets. So from small to big, we see this impact of God and how he reacts. What shall we do? Similar to Jesus, the leaders of the day fail to see Jesus when the Gentiles get it. And this is foolish. It's amazing that Elisha is not serving at the court of the king. That the king of Israel doesn't value his services in the same kind of way. But the king of Syria recognizes his true enemy is not the king of Israel. His true enemy is the man of God, Elisha, that seems to be getting in his way with everything he wants. Eventually the enemy will figure out what is stymieing their efforts. So you have this storm come in. Chariots, horses, infantry attacking a little town like Dothan. Try to do research on Dothan. It's nothing. It's a camp at best. There's not really a city here. So this is a reasonable feeler. They're absolutely surrounded. No hope. Odds are small. What could be better for God's kingdom? Like this is wonderful. So The servant of Elisha, notice that Gehazi's out of the picture. He's off with leprosy right now, probably hanging out by the gates of Samaria waiting for the next story. And he only sees the enemy, and from the eyes of the human flesh, it is reasonable to think we're going to die today. The armies of Syria are all around. You feel totally surrounded, and then you hear the Michael W. Smith song. You may think that you're surrounded, but you're not. Or how does that song go? I'm bad with. I shouldn't bring up lyrics if I can't remember the lyrics. It may feel like you're surrounded, but you're surrounded by him, or something like that. What can good do? What can this simple group of people trying to build a new building for themselves? What can they do in the face of this much rage and hate and anger? And from the eyes of the world, nothing. There's no hope to be had here. It's over. And I think as Christians sometimes we look at the world, we look at our lives, we look at our jobs, we look at where we're at, and we think there's no hope, it's over. This is I'm doomed. And it's really easy to look at life that way when you're looking through fleshly eyes. And it's not untrue to look at things. It's it's not untrue to think I'm surrounded and Syria is about to kill us all. That's actually a true statement from that lens. Problem is God has a very different lens. So he answered him, verse 16, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. There's a lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples. I think it's the same lesson. The same God that saves with an ax will save his people too. If he cares for an ax head, he's going to care about you don't fear those who kill the body but can't kill the soul rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell Matthew 10:28. know what you should be afraid of what you should be afraid of is that your soul's in trouble and you reach to the Lord and you say help me Lord my soul's in trouble But to fear the things of this world, to fear what other people think about you, to fear what's going to happen to you in four or five years, is not fearing the right things. It's fearing the things that I think the enemy wants you to be afraid of. There's a spiritual battle and aspect to how we see the world and what is real. And what's more real than the Syrian armies are the heavenly hosts that Elisha can see, but his servant can't see yet. His servant's person trying to serve the Lord too. So you got two people that love the Lord, trying to serve the Lord. One of them sees, and one of them can't see. It's not a sin to not see. It's a sin to not trust or not ask for your eyes to be opened. So this idea that he can't see right away isn't a problem. This is why we have normal, decent Christian folks that struggle in their lives, and they go through things like depression and mental health stuff. The degree to which we can see is the degree to which we can relax and have trust. So, uh, you can look at almost every problem that we have in this kind of light. There's an almighty God, and to that God, the problems that we have are no bigger than the axe head. They're no more significant than that. And he can fix them instantly if he so wants us to have that fixed. So, in verse 17, Elisha prays and says, Notice that he doesn't pray to deal with the Syrian army, he prays for his brother who just brought up this concern. And he says, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he might see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness, according to the word of Elisha. Lord, I pray. Elisha starts by pointing him back to the Lord. And the Lord there should be in all caps. Yahweh. He uses the name of God. And God acts. He helps the servant to see what the real situation is. And the real situation is they're not in so much trouble. They actually have a bigger army. And I think that's, it's easy for us to see as a small little fellowship that there's things out there that are daunting and tough. It's not as easy for us to have our eyes open to see that they're really not tough from God's perspective. There's no rebuke from Elisha. He doesn't rebuke his servant like his last servant got leprosy and got sent out of the camp. This, there's no rebuke for this. And I think that's a tough thing. You get a lot of Christians when somebody's struggling that you go after and say, well, it must be your faith, it must be you. That's the problem. And that's why you're struggling. What a lie. We don't see that modeled by Elijah. He doesn't yell at his servant here. He just prays for him. I'm going to pray that your eyes are, you can see differently. Because seeing differently helps you to change your mind on that. He turns to God and points out the very obvious fact that he can't see. So there's no rebuke. There's no argument with the servant. Like, hey, you need to see it my way. And the more we talk, the more you're going to see it through God's eyes than if you see it through your own. That's impossible for some people. So this is a different kind of prayer. It's not the idea that if I counsel you long enough, you'll see the world the way I see it, and you'll suddenly be fixed. It's not that easy. It's not that simple. Without the Holy Spirit there, there's no apologetic, there's no argument that Elisha gives to his servant. He literally doesn't deal with the servant. He deals with his God and lets God deal with the servant. And I think that's beautiful. I think it's a wonderful approach to how we handle things in the body of Christ. We see the sons of the prophet dealing with it the same way. The prayer is open his eyes. He teaches others what needs to be seen. And the young man there is there. So uh, just this, a wonderful image to see the thing that's unseen. Uh, Old Testament version of this, Deuteronomy 24.4. Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and, eyes to, and, and ears to hear to this very day. It is a spiritual issue to have your ears and eyes opened. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It's completely separate. We can be blind to things and still love the Lord. We can see things and not love the Lord. So there is this idea, New Testament version of the same idea, Luke 10, 23. He then turned to his disciples and said privately, blessed are the eyes that see the things that you see. You're blessed because you could see. At a different time, Jesus turns to his disciples and say, don't you understand yet? Do you really not get this? So again, it has nothing to do with if his disciples are on the right track. It does have to do with a lifetime of service and following Christ to say, Lord, continue to open my eyes. It should be a daily prayer. Lord, continue to open my ears and let me hear. Continue to let me see the world through your eyes and not my own. And that's not to be blind or willfully clueless, but it is to ask the Lord to reveal and give us more revelation. Um, Notice that Elijah doesn't try to persuade or explain or get into it. Just a prayer. I think the Bible is like a microscope or a telescope. When you look at the word through, this is why it's important to be in the word. When we're in the word, we see things differently because we're using a tool like the Bible to see through God's eyes. It's really important. And so one of the toughest things is when people are struggling, the tendency can sometimes be to get away from the Word of God. And instead, the tendency should be to go use it. I can see things through a microscope or a telescope that I can't see with my naked eye. And the same thing's true with the Bible. I can see things through the light of the Bible that I can't see with my own understanding. So you have this idea that they're not... It's not that Elijah is super powerful, that Elijah lights up like this superhero kind of thing. It's that all around Elijah, the armies of God are ready to go. In other words, Elijah is not the source of any strength or power. Mark eleven twenty three. 23, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things will be done, he will have whatever he says. That's a powerful statement about prayer. But you can't say that if you're not praying for the things God wants. God's not going to be contrary to his own will when we pray for things. Elisha sees what God shows and doesn't worry about it. He's not concerned about the battle to come that hasn't even started yet. In fact, the next prayer shows a little bit about his perspective on this. The mountain was full. God's power is not lacking. And I think that's one of the toughest things about prayer. When we pray, we kind of do it through our own judgment on if, you know, is this going to happen? Is this not going to happen? Should I pray that boldly? Should I not? But it should never be about whether or not God has the power to do things. That's never like should be something that we doubt when we pray. The chariots had fire. I just want to point this out. I think this is kind of, you know, the tools of God's army are essentially different and practically different than the tools of the world. The world has horses, chariots, and infantry also. God just has horses and chariots, but God's horses and chariots are of fire, So if you take horses made of fire versus non-fire horses, God's tools are actually far superior to what the world has, even if they aren't seen by everybody. So Elijah's faith isn't faith because he just believes God's more powerful. He can see that God's more powerful. So when he's praying for this situation, it's really clear what's going on. You are of God, 1 John 4, 4 little children, and you have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he that's in the world. That's God's perspective on any problem we have. You'll get through it. It might be a long haul, but you'll get through it. So we don't serve a small or a, a God that lacks power, and we don't serve a God that lacks tools, and we don't serve a God that has mundane looking chariots. When God brings the chariots to the battle, they're of fire, right? Or they have headlights, I don't know. Ma- Matthew 16, 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. The things that are our tools in the spiritual warfare are the things God reveals to us. Not just blind faith or, or, or empty hope, but the things we see and the things that we recognize. And sometimes when we lack the ability to see it, we need to tell a brother and sister in the faith so they can pray for us. Elijah's prayer here is intercessory. The servant of Elijah isn't able to solve the problem on his own. Elijah has to intervene and pray for him. This is the body of Christ in a really clear image. It's not even a typology. It's just an actual, that's the way it is. And I think sometimes in the church when somebody is blind, when somebody is having a hard time, when somebody is deep in fear, we blame the person instead of pray for the person. How wrong is that? When in the kingdom of Christ, if we can assume that we're all here because we want to serve the Lord and get closer to the Lord, then we pray for each other. And we don't necessarily accuse each other. Faith faith is never a thing of blind trust. So if you don't see it, you don't feel it, it's not there, don't beat yourself up about it. Go to a brother or sister in the faith and get them praying for you. That's actually your solution. Not to work it out on your own. Express those concerns and those fears and share them with people so that we can start getting about the business of intercessory prayer for one another. That said, If you've got private things you're struggling with, you may want to do that privately. You may not want to open that up to a room full of people at the end of the teaching tonight. right? Have some judgment, but have brothers and sisters you can take even the most intimate things to. We often call that an accountability partner. That you just go to every day and they're praying for you every day. A brother or sister in Christ that you can lean on. That's what Elijah has brought in. He loses Gehazi, but here's another young man that he's taken along with him. Just because Gehazi screwed up doesn't mean Elijah's going to stop discipling people, right? Elijah doesn't ask for for his servant to imagine or make believe or leave his sense of reason. He prays that he can see differently. God commands obedience based on his nature, not on blind faith. So he can show himself faithful and obedient. He asks us to do the small things so God can respond to those small miracles and blessings. And if we see the blessings, then we're really willing to have faith in the big things. And if we have faith on the big things, God will bless in bigger ways. And it becomes a cycle that, you know, lasts about 70 years, about our lifespan. And hopefully as believers, by the time we get to be old codgers, we're so immersed in this walk of faith, but it's been built up over years. I think this is the toughest thing for a new believer. You're like, I don't have the faith that that veteran believer has. Of course not. You're brand new. You're a puppy, right? Start learning how to live that disciplined life of faith. Watch for those small blessings so that you have more faith and you grow in your faith. And it happens over time. It's why we hang out for lifetimes, not for a few weeks. Faithful fellowship is something that happens over the long haul with an understanding and a passion for people like Elisha's servant that are struggling with fear. Okay, well, let's struggle with it together. God commands faith after we've seen it, read it, know about it, and hear it from the Word. There's an accountability. When you guys hear these Bible stories, there's a new accountability that you walk out of here with and what you came in with, right? That's how the Word of God affects our life. Once you know that God's done these things and that He cares about you, you're expected to know that and to be able to trust in what God's done. So this is why in Mark 6, 6, Jesus marvels at those who have seen the miracles of the, Israel, of the nation of Israel, the Jews, and they don't have faith in him. But he also marvels at those, the Gentiles, who haven't seen or heard about any of this, but they still have faith in Jesus. Uh, Matthew 6.10. Like, those are the two things Jesus gets excited about. Wow, how can you not believe after you've seen all this? And how can you believe when you haven't seen any of it? And the difference is what kind of microscope you're using. Are you looking at the world through the lens of Jesus or are you not? Are you using the word of God or aren't you? Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. He asked for his servant to get sight. He asked for the enemy to be blind. This is a good tactic because if you want to evade the enemy, them being blind will help you in that process. So it actually comes true. And... We have this idea that there is a two-sided prayer here. One is to bless the kingdom of heaven and the other is to stymie the kingdom of the enemy. Matthew 16, 19, I like connecting this to the New Testament. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we get a model of that here in the Old Testament. It's the same God, he operates the same way. I love that God wants us to be a part of everything that's happening. So that we can give him the glory. And, it, and, and he deserves the glory. Verse 19. Now Elijah said to them, the sons of the prophets, or the, the army of Syria, this is not the way. This is like an Obi-Wan Kenobi trip. These are not the droids you're looking for. They come to Dothan to attack him. They get there and he just walks into the camp. This is not the way. Nor is this the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man you seek. Super vague, Right? Very Jedi mind tricky. And then he led them to Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. This is where the king lives. And so it was when they'd come to Samaria that Elijah said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. And there they were inside Samaria. This, you, now you're in the middle of the capital city. This is not a good position for an attacking army, right? Surrounded by your enemy. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elijah, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? The double use there is an emphatic, the king wants to kill them all. Like, these are the enemies of Israel. Can we just slaughter them? Really interesting thing. At many places in the Old Testament, we've seen God command them to drive out the Gentiles or to eradicate Gentiles that are attacking God's people. We get a very different command here. And I think that's because all of these Elisha stories are images of the church. And so we get a completely different approach. (laughs) Verse 20, so it was. I like the fact that Elijah comes in and Syria actually listens to him. Let's think about that. They're going out there to kill him. So is that because they don't know that this is Elijah because they can't see properly? And they just think he's some guy on the road going, oh, you're going the wrong way. We got to go this way. He doesn't say he's taking them to Dothan. He just takes, says, I'm going to take him. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you to Elijah. He just says, I'm going to take you to the man you seek. And when they get there, there's Elijah standing in front of them. So it's not like he, he's untrue in this, but he definitely redirects them. I think sometimes when the enemy comes to attack, one of the best things the church can do is just redirect, right? You want to attack this and that? Well, you can have this and that, but let me talk to you about Jesus, right? And so he leads them to Samaria, not to destroy them, but to take them captive. Samaria being the northern capital. The repetition here shows the king's desire to slaughter all of them. But verse 22, he answered, you shall not kill them. So it shows you that to the credit of Jehoram, he actually listens to the prophet. To the degree to which this decision is really Elisha's decision, not the king's. So we can see that not only is the hand of God shifted blessing, but the authority is being shifted too. You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you've taken captive with your sword and bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And then he prepared a great feast for them. And after that they ate and they drank and he sent them away and they went to their master so the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Wonderful example of how to deal with the enemy. Sometimes the way to deal with the enemy, I think, is to show hospitality. They come thinking they're attacking their enemy and then when they arrive they're not. They're attacking somebody that's willing to feed them, give them water, take them in. It's just a wonderful idea we don't wrestle against flesh and blood we don't have enemies of this world so when we deal with other humans we may be dealing with an unclean spirit we might be dealing with a demon we might be dealing with somebody with ideas that are mistaken and false but that person is never our enemy we wrestle with powers and principalities against the rulers of darkness of this age against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places And there's, when we get into that realm, we got fiery tanks on our side, not just what the weapons of the world has. We far outnumber them in the spiritual realms. The power of God is far superior than the power of the enemy. So the enemy gets the gumption to attack. They're totally mismatched. And I think this gives me hope. We're, when we look at like the battles we have in our life in perspective and perspective of eternity, how big of an issue is that really? Really? put it in perspective. But then that idea of like those that are with me are far superior than the problems I have in the world. The enemy comes and they think they're going to attack the gates of God's people, but they can't prevail against those gates. Matthew 16:17. I say to you also, you are Peter and upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we get a great image of that with Elijah. They can't prevail against the gates. So they set food and water before them. They show hospitality. This is the same gift that Elisha got from the rich woman. And then he just passes that along, and he's going to give it to other people. He's been blessed with hospitality. Therefore, he knows how to bless with hospitality. And it's a learned thing. He sends them back to their master. You, you came in war, but we're going to send you home in peace with some food in your belly. Those that come to fight with us could find out that we're actually their friend what a great image for Christian evangelism. We're not here to be your enemy and to battle you on these things. We've already won that battle. I'm here to be your friend. Can I treat you to dinner? And that just disarms people when you, it's called de-escalation. And so this de-escalation, make no mistake, Elisha is absolutely a warrior here, but he's the warrior of the highest order. He knows how to bring a situation and bring it back down. There's a story of a Japanese sensei that came to America was visiting the New York subway system. And this drunk guy is on the subway harassing everybody on the car. And he gets to this kind of sensei person and the sensei person's sitting there and he looks up and he, and he joyfully says, Hey, I remember you. And instantly this angry junk person kind of steps back like, what are you talking about? And this guy goes, didn't we go to, where did you go to high school at? And he's just started asking him questions and the drunk guy started answering them. And they'd never met before ever. But the emotional control of the sensei was so much stronger than the drunk, violent, belligerent guy. He instantly de-escalated it, and by the time the, the car ride was over and he had to get off the car, the drunk guy was sitting next to the sensei and bawling on his shoulder, and he was just getting patted on the head because this guy had pain in his life and anger, and he was able to take it. Instead of being at battle with the person, he was able to make a new friend with the person. I just love this story second corinthians 10 5 we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of god and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to christ they take all of this enemy stuff coming at them they take it captive they make it obedient to the kingdom of god and we do the same thing with our own brain right our brain can throw a billion things at us at once and absolutely overwhelm us and our job is to take captive those thoughts, put them in an orderly thing, feed them with the word of God, wash them with the Holy Spirit, and send them back to their master. You know, if that's coming from the enemy, the enemy can have it back because we just don't need it here. So when thoughts evade, we pray for sight. When thoughts invade, we, we know that God's greater than those thoughts. When thoughts invade, we take them captive, we send them back to their enemy. Just The imagery here is just great. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more. That was the goal of the whole situation, peace. At the end of the day, we just want peace. So Elisha actually gets the outcome that is the most desirable outcome without even having a fight in the earthly sense. They don't actually go to battle. This is an upgrade from what the kings of Israel were doing. Kings of Israel kept getting them into wars. So the land of Israel seems to be protected here. It's distinct from Samaria, the capital, because you'll notice in verse 24, the bands of raiders have stopped kind of harassing the land land of Israel, but the king, Ben-Hadad, is actually gathering a larger army to go attack Syria directly, or Samaria directly. So what happens after this The Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. So they go right for the city. And there was great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth a cob of dove droppings. Why would you eat dove droppings? Because they have protein in them. Dubs go after all the good seeds and grains, so what's in their droppings is actually protein-rich. Doesn't taste good, though. And that gets five shekels of silver. These are neither one of these donkey head dove droppings. These are not healthy. They're not good for eating, and they're not kosher. They're filthy foods. Um, So they gathered the enemy to attack. Here they are back at it. Uh, Just the costs of these. The donkey head's about two to three months worth of salary. So for an average income in the US, about $10,000, $15,000 to pay for a donkey head. you know, so you're just looking at kind of the price tags here. Of they're trying to get any protein they can get, because they've eaten all the normal food. Then 26, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, "Help, my lord, O king!" And he said, "If the Lord doesn't help you, where can I find help for you?" From the th- compare her approach to the king who's not godly to the servant's distress that he brought to Elijah, and look at how differently they handle it. Elisha's like, Lord, help this person to see what I see. And the king of Israel doesn't see anything good. So his reaction is, if God can't help you, how do you think I can help you? Like there's no help to be found from unbelievers, from the threshing floor or from the wine press. And then the king said to her, what's troubling you? So this expresses the king's helplessness. Uh, At least he's hearing her out. Interesting character in that regard. She answered and the woman said to me, This woman said to me, give me your son that we can eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and we ate him. Again, this is a horrible famine. And I said to her on the next day, give me your son that we can eat him, but she's hidden her son. That's not fair. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes and he passed by on the wall and the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. The king's at his wits end. He doesn't know how to solve the problems that are in front of him. And all he's got to do when the problems come up to his attention is to just realize how horrible of a king he is. That under his own strength and power, he hasn't done anything good for Israel. Uh, To this point, the king is seeing the full impact of a life without God. It just leads to this. Why so much gruesome detail? Like we can confess that boiling babies and eating them is gross, Why so much detail? Part of that is because God said that exactly this would happen back in Leviticus 26. God warned them that if you don't follow after the Lord and you're after other gods, your life will be a disaster. Deuteronomy 28, 54. Even the most gentle and sensitive men among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife that he loves or his surviving children, and he will not give to them any of the flesh of his children that he's eating And it will be all that he has left because of the suffering your enemy will afflict on you during the siege of your cities. Like God predicted this would happen. So here we are down this line of fallen kings and exactly what God said would happen has happened. If you don't have the protection of the Lord, you're at the whims of the enemy. And and it's just a matter of time before the enemy destroys you. And that's the warning. It's not even like God's necessarily cursing them. He's just letting them try to do it on their own. Follow and be blessed or don't follow and good luck on your own. See how that goes. The enemy's calamities aren't just bad luck. They're allowed in the hope that Israel repents. And it's not all hardship is like this. Some hardships are just tests and trials. But sometimes hardships are because there's a part of our life that we haven't given to the Lord. So the Lord's going to take that element of our life and it's going to continue to be a problem until we give it to the Lord. So at some point, selfish and willful kings are going to have a kingdom that can't provide for their selfishness anymore. This is the nature of sin. It's really appealing up front to do everything on your own, but then when you come up dry, it's not like there's any resource to go to. There's a way that seems right to man, Proverbs 14, 12, but in the end, it's the way of death. It seems great at the beginning until it has no fruit because there's no power behind it. So we initially saw Jehoram, with, when he took the kingship, he was on top of the world. Remember, he was mustering his own armies when we first saw him back, 2 Kings chapter 3. And he was attacking other nations. But now he's hiding out in a singular city, and he's got the threat of starvation, starvation so real that people are eating their kids. Sin has an effect, and it has a cumulative effect. Everyone, even non-believers, hates the effects of sin. The natural outcome of a sinful life. Everybody hates the outcome. What's amazing is that people don't identify the source of the problem and solve it. They just hate the results of the problem. So you get and you'll meet, and most of you have met people like this. Their life is a mess, but they won't fix the thing that's making it a mess because that's the thing they cling to. It's their precious. And the pursuit of their precious will lead them right to the fires of Mount Doom. And they won't let it go. They'll fight for it. But it's the very thing that they need to let go of. That sin in their life needs to go. So instead of calling for Elijah, he curses Elijah in verse 31. Then he, the king, says, God, do so to me and more also if the head of Elijah, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. I'm going to kill Elijah. Or Elisha. Right? You think I'm saying Elijah, but I'm really saying Elisha. Amazing how the king should actually know better. The king's witnessed miracles. He should know better. You don't kill the very person that is able to help you. But Elijah was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him and the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, "Elders, do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? It's not like Elijah's fooled by this. He gets what's coming. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. He... Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And the king said, Surely this calamity is for the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He's setting it all up. Verse 32, we know that Elijah, when he first started to follow Elijah, gave up all his earthly belongings. So, whatever house he's in, in verse 32, it's not his own house because he doesn't have possessions. Uh, so he's hanging out with the elders, it says, and the elders were sitting with him. He's likely meeting in one of those houses, which says the elders of Israel are not going to the king anymore. They're turning back to the man of God. First, the people turn back to the man of God. Now the elders are turning back to the man of God. The last person left in that thing is the king. Remember, as Elijah left and God lifted his hand from the kingdom, Elisha's ministry was to win the kingdom back to God from the bottom up grassroots campaign sons of the prophets need a bigger facility and now he's meeting with the elders of Israel likely saying you need to turn back to Yahweh your king and follow the law that he gave you and so we see this Elisha's kind of position has been elevating not because he's elevated himself but because God continues to elevate him through these miracles and these these uh, the honorable living that they're doing At least he admits, I think, in the last verse, verse 33, at least the king admits that he's hating the Lord. Like, that's actually a step of growth. You know, before he was just hating Elisha. and At this point, he he knows that the calamity is from the Lord, and he's just mistakenly thinking Elijah's responsible for that. So he's created his own chaos, because back in chapter 3, he attacked Syria. He started this whole thing, and that chaos has now come back to bite him, and he's blaming God for his own problems. The horrors that the king are experiencing were predictable, they were prophesied, and they're consistent, and they're preventable. He didn't have to be doing any of this. But he says the calamities from the Lord, even though he's the one that's created his own mess interesting kind of thing and just an application of this in our own lives sometimes as we struggle with things sometimes those things are from the enemy Oftentimes, sometimes those things are from our own lives and we're still clinging to something that we know God wants us to let go of and instead of letting go of it we, we cling to it and then we get upset when there's, the, when there's struggles and problems in our spiritual walk so as, as brothers and sisters in the faith we pray for each other for that too Not just that eyes can be opened, but that our heart can be soft enough to let go of the sins in our life so that we can be blessed by God. Not blaming God for making a law that we don't like, but just obeying God and doing it in humility and service, changing ourselves to be more like God versus trying to change God or kill his messenger. So that said, if anybody's angry about something from, you know, that's taken out of the Bible, Don't try to take off the head of the messenger. I'm just trying to share what's in the chapter. Um, We'll continue with this story next week, um, in part because it's another six pages, and then it would have been like almost an hour and 45 minutes tonight. So we'll pick up again next week, and we'll see what happens next with Elijah and the king. And And I think, again, it's just this blessing of kind of showing this relationship that we have. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much. We know that these that the, the words that have been recorded are for our blessing, they're for our teaching, and they're, Lord, ultimately to soften our heart. May we learn from the mistakes of others. May we learn from the, the godly people that are introduced in the in the texts, and so that we can be more like Elisha and less like Jeho- Jehoram. And Lord, we want to be more and more closer to you. And Lord, if there's things in our life that are getting in the way of that, if we're creating our own mess. Lord, I just pray that people's eyes can be opened. May they see the world the way you want them to see it. May they see your blessing and not be blind to it. May they, if they can't see it, Lord, I pray their ears would be open so they can hear the blessings that are in other people's lives in the fellowship. May we be open to hearing those. And Lord, may we just always be looking to see your chariots, your horses, and the way in which the spiritual reality is far more significant than what we can see with our eyes and ears. So Lord, help us to recognize in our own hearts as we humble ourselves before you, Lord, that there's a blessing in doing that. And Lord, help us to be like the sons of the prophet, that we just faithfully study your word together and we, um, we give all glory to you. May our heart be like uh, the young man who lost the axe head, where if we hurt somebody else in the fellowship or we lose something or damage something that's not ours, May even those small little things bother us because our goal is to be honoring you in all of our actions and deeds. So Lord, when we fall short, help us to get up and keep moving. And Lord, help those of us that are doing well to be a blessing to those in the fellowship that aren't. And so Lord, that together iron sharpens iron and that we go forward in the name of Jesus Christ uh, for your glory, your honor, and your dominion. Amen.